Well, as Peter mentioned this week, we're hosting the Global Leadership Summit on Thursday and Friday. And a few years ago, psychologist Henry Cloud gave a talk entitled The Wise, the Foolish, and the Evil. And what he talked about is he said, wise are people who respond to truth and accept it and try to incorporate it into their lives. He quoted Proverbs 9.9, which says, instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Fools, he said, um, may have great gifts, but when the light shines on them, they adjust the light, they dim it, they deflect it, they deny it, they do anything but own it. That means you can coach the wise, they welcome it, they respond to it, they try to incorporate it into their lives. The evil, he said, they're evil. You can't fix them. He said the only thing you can do is call the police or hire a lawyer. The fools, though, are trickier because they argue with you, but they do anything but respond. They never listen. Well, today we're going to look at a story that has two very foolish men acting like fools until a wise woman intervenes. And when she does, one listens and the other does not. And the way each man responds has profound consequences. We've been in a series this summer on the life of David, and we've looked all the way back to the beginning of the story when, as just a teenager, he found out that he was going to be the future king of Israel. This was a surprise to him, to everyone else, but Samuel, directed by God, went to his family and identified him as the one who would replace King Saul. Although there's this long 25-year or so period where he's the king anointed, but not yet crowned king. And he began well. In fact, he had this amazing experience, this impressive victory over the giant Goliath. And it inspired a song that became a national hit. The chorus went, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul hated the song. It made him so mad that he tried to have David eliminated. Six different times he tried to have David killed. And David himself had his own chance to get rid of Saul, but... He showed mercy, trusting God's timing and leaving things in God's hands. Which brings us to this week's story. Once again, David's on the run. About 600 men have decided to follow him. They're living in a desolate place where there aren't many people, but there are large herds of sheep. It's a dangerous place. It's filled with bandits and predators and other things. And David and his men help protect the flock, the property of a wealthy man named Nabal. Now, Nabal in Hebrew means fool, and so this is unlikely to be the name that his parents gave him. It's more likely a nickname, and like many nicknames even in our day, the nickname describes a person's character or some characteristic about them. Nabal, the narrator adds, was surly and mean. And this doesn't just mean that he's a crusty sort. This means that he's a bad man. He's cruel, he's arrogant, he's selfish, even evil, and later we'll hear him described as a fool. Now, there's a third character in the story, and that's Nabal's wife, Abigail. And there couldn't be a stronger contrast between the two of them. She's described as smart and beautiful and winsome and gracious, courageous and wise, a complete contrast to her husband. And she's more than just book smart. She has uncommonly good judgment. Well, for a few months, David and his men are helping to protect Nabal's flocks. It's sheep shearing time, and in their culture, when that happened, when they... Uh, They uh, collected all of the year's wool. The tradition was at the end of that to hold a big feast, a festival, a celebration, kind of like a Thanksgiving day. And it's then that David makes a request. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you want to follow along, it'll be on page 416 in the Pew Bible, page 416. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. The words will also be on the screen. So it says, David sent 10 young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household. 
and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. The whole time they were at Caramel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, I have to tell you, just to peel back the layers a little bit here, that there's a bit of controversy about this story. On the surface, the, rec- the request seems fairly routine. David and his men have been watching over some of Nabal's possessions. Um, they protected his flock, and now they're asking for compensation. Not money, not cash, but some food from the celebration. And that's actually where things get complicated, because what's not clear here is whether Nabal, or David is doing Nabal a service or whether... This is an extortion racket. Now, i got to tell you, I read probably half a dozen or more scholars this week, and they're about evenly split on what David's motives are. Some say, yes, David and his men did do Nabal a great service. The area was dangerous. Uh, Not only were there outlaws, there were uh, the elements and predators, and so a few more hands to help watch these large flocks of sheep um, probably provided much-needed protection. So if those scholars are right, then David and his men made a reasonable request. Since their efforts contributed to Nabal's success, at times uh, 10, 15% of the flock might be lost. Maybe they kept those losses to a much smaller number. And so they deserve some of the food and drink from the celebration. But others say not so fast. There's nowhere here said that Nabal asked David to help or even that David let him know what he was doing. So David might be running something like a protection racket. So if you've seen some, a show like The Sopranos, You may know that sometimes there are those who will extort money from, say, shopkeepers and say, we're providing you with protection. So maybe that's what's going on. So when he sends Nabal a request about wanting some payment, that request may have been interpreted as a threat, as an act of intimidation. So in that case, then Nabal might be small-minded, as we'll find out in a moment, when he refuses to give them anything, but he was technically right. Now, if all of that's true, then you have to come back to the fact that the Bible is a book that doesn't whitewash problems. Um, There are a lot of heroes of the faith, people that we look up to, and we find in their stories things that make you kind of scratch your head and wonder what they were thinking. That's the way the Bible is. It lets us see things warts and all. Now, who's right in this situation? Those who say that David did a service to Nabal or those who say that he was running an extortion racket? My own opinion is is that David did provide Nabal with a useful service and so was warranted in asking for some food from the celebration. And one of the evidences for that is in verse 16. This is something that David's men himself, or excuse me, Nabal's men himself themselves say about David and his men. It says, Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep. So what they're saying is, is that they protected us, they provided some help from danger. So Nabal benefited, so it would be only fitting for him to provide some help for them. So how does Nabal respond to this request? Well, in verse 10, he says this, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water, the meat I've slaughtered for my shears, and give it to these men who come from who knows where? Now, it sounds like Nabal doesn't know who David is. Actually, he does. You see, immediately, he knows he's a son of Jesse, and he knows that he's running from Saul. Um, Really, what he's saying, in effect, is, who does he think he is? And then he insults him by claiming that he's the one at fault in that conflict with Saul. Just like a rebellious child, he's saying. Uh, 
Then after insulting David, he refuses to give him anything. And that's when David begins to respond. He's ticked. In verse 13, it says, it says to all of his men, strap on your swords. Now, um, David and Nabal lived in a shame and honor culture. In the ancient world, men particularly took great importance on their personal reputation. So any slight or insult, um, they took seriously. Uh, if you've read anything about the Middle Ages, that was another shame and honor culture. They exist around the world today and even some places in the United States. So when David heard what Nabal said, he was outraged and felt like he had to defend his honor. Now, that doesn't make what David decided to do at this point right. In fact, the New Testament writers tell us that the early church encouraged a completely different ethic. And let me give you one example from the writings of St. Peter. 1 Peter 3.9, Peter says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. But that's not in David's mind. His honor's been slighted. He tells his men to strap on their swords, takes about two-thirds of his army or his men, 400 of them, and he heads down uh, the mountain to settle things with Nabal. Verse 21 and 22, 21 and 22, he says, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all those who belong to him. Now what's surprising here, if you were with us last week, is what David doesn't do. Last week we talked about two chapters, chapter 23 and 24, and we observed that five different times it says David inquired of the Lord or he sought God's advice, sought God's wisdom before taking any action. In fact, in one case, he did this even though the action was pretty transparent. It was absolutely clear what he ought to do. Instead, here, in contrast to the last story, driven by a temper tantrum, he is, goes out bent on taking revenge. He doesn't sound very kingly. He sounds a lot more like King, lot like King Saul. And the risks here are actually fairly substantial, significant. If he goes into battle, it could turn out poorly. All might be lost simply because he gets his nose out of joint about a few insults. And that's the way it can be with anger. That's why anger, even if justified, is difficult to keep in check. It's probably why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount mentions the close connection between anger and murder. These two things, there's not a big difference between them. David also seems to have forgotten another lesson that we talked about last week, and that is the way, at least in that story, he left the big picture in God's hands, and he resisted the temptation to force the issue, even when he knew what the ultimate outcome should be. Now, so, how do you take into account the fact that in one story, David does all the right things, and just not long after, he follows, falls prey to um, this, this desire to take revenge? And I think that's true of us as well. Sometimes we can do all the right things and that not long after we end up falling back into bad habits. It just reminds us that we need to be vigilant about responding in ways with God's help that we, that we can in the right way. At this point, David's prepared to do something morally wrong, extremely risky, and politically disastrous, but he's bailed out by Nabal's quick-thinking wife. Hearing David's reaction to Nabal's insult, the shepherds who are working for Nabal fear. They, they realize immediately that even their lives are at danger. And they know that if David attacks, they could lose their lives. So they go to Abigail. Here's what they say, beginning in verse 14. It says, 
They're describing David. They say, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were with them out in the fields, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over, they say to Abigail, and see what you can do, because disaster's hanging over our master and his whole household. That means them as well. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So they're concerned. They go to Abigail. They say, I think you're the only person who can help us here. Nabal's bad. David's good. David has done us no harm. Nothing's ever been missing. They've been good to us. And now Nabal's been insulted, or he's insulted David. And the situation is very bad. So what's interesting here is that Abigail doesn't defend her husband. She doesn't question their assessment of the situation. Uh, One gets the sense that she knows her husband's character. He's a stubborn, bad-tempered man that no one can reason with. And so she acts, it says, quickly to head off the potential consequences of David's angry response. She prepares a feast for him and all his men, 600 men. That's no small undertaking. But she doesn't tell Nabal what she's doing. Instead, it says that she went to David. So David's heading down the mountain. He's going to attack Nabal and his, his men. And it says that she came riding her donkey into a a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. That's verse 20. Now verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. Verse 26. My Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. Now what Abigail does here is go at considerable risk. Remember, David had his troops all whipped into frenzy. They've heard the pregame speech. They're all ready to go out and, and... slice up some, uh, some folks to slaughter everyone in Nabal's household. And she courageously comes to David and asks him to reconsider. She appeals to his moral intu- intuition. Remember who you are. You're the anointed one of God. Don't get involved in this grudge match, this petty battle of shame and honor. And she's successful. She protects, she guides, she intervenes, she prevents tragedy. She's depicted here as the voice of wisdom. She tells him to trust God to deal with his enemies, that vengeance is God's job, not his. She says, if you do this, you'll regret it. Nabal's a fool, and don't you be one either. One fool in this story is enough. Then she predicts success for David and forcefully tells him how fortunate he will be if he abandons his plan. So in verse 21, she says, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. At the beginning, we talked about the wise, the fool, and the evil. And according to Henry Cloud, the difference between a wise person and a fool is that the wise person listens to advice and is willing to change. At this point in the story, David shows himself to be wise. He stops, he listens, and abandons what would have been a disastrous course of action. So in verse 32, David says to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you 
today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. So David's expressing his gratitude for, to, to Abigail for her wise advice. One of the questions I've got uh, throughout this series is, what's the difference between Saul and David? And some of you were with us last summer and know that when we talked about the life of Saul, that while he got an early good start, it wasn't long before Saul got uh, quickly off track. And very quickly, God said, I've rejected you as king. And it seems like some fairly small things that God responds to and dismisses Saul as king, and yet David makes his own mistakes, one in this story, and he will make other even bigger mistakes later, and yet he's considered the one who was after God's heart. So what's the difference between these two characters? Why is it that um, one is treated so harshly, Saul, and the other so easily? It doesn't always seem fair. I think in this story, we get a little bit of a glimpse into what is different between Saul and David. When Saul gets angry, he never pulls back from his anger. He may have had a moment of clarity. Last week, we looked at how uh, there was one brief moment when he understood that what he was doing was wrong and what David was doing was right. But it's only a moment because he very quickly returns to his, his old ways. David, on the other hand, is willing to change chorus. He's open to input. He listens to wise advice. We'll find later that when he sins, he repents. And when necessary, he's willing to leave things in God's hands. In this case, God does take care of things. Now, understand that what we're seeing, I think, is a window into David's heart, into his soul. David accepts the food that Abigail brings. She returns home. When he arri she arrives back where Nabal is, the party's in full swing. Nabal and his guests are so drunk that she decides she can't tell him what she's done until morning. And then the narrator tells us in verse 37 that she did tell him what she had done. It says, Nabal's heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So we had a stroke or a heart attack here. Well, we started again today with the difference between wise people and fools. And Nabal here is shown clearly as a fool. It's even his nickname. But David almost does something equally foolish. But just in the nick of the time, he's rescued by the intervention of a wise woman. So the question for us today is, are we wise or are we fools? Are we Nabal or David? Will we listen to the Abigails in our lives or ignore them? At the beginning of the story, what we have is two arrogant, overly touchy fools bent on destroying one another. One refuses to listen to anyone, but the other at the last minute pulls back from the brink. So are we teachable, like David was in this story? Or are we like Nabal, who was so wicked that no one could talk to him? David, by contrast, did listen. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you, that's Abigail, today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and keeping me from bloodshed today. Fools are unteachable and uncorrectable. When criticized, they bristle, they get defensive, they deflect whatever you've said back at you. They're so full of themselves, they focus on their fragile, bruised, and wounded egos, not on the wisdom that comes from God. And that's what separates David from Nabal. David listens, Nabal does not. The idea of foolishness and wisdom applies not just to the affairs of our lives, but also spiritually. St. Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
writing to the Corinthian Christians, he tells them that the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, the message of the cross, is considered foolishness by many. He says, but to us it is the power of God. He says, many foolishly dismiss this message as irrelevant, but it is for us our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And it's easy for us to hold on to pride spiritually, just like we can in the affairs of our lives, to believe that we're self-sufficient, to respond to slights by getting even, trying to get even. It's all part of our tendency to rebel against God, to put ourselves at the center of life. To learn and grow, we need to be teachable. And that applies to our spiritual, our relationship with God as well. We need the hope that we find in Jesus Christ to be wise in the ways of God. Here at City Church, we believe, we really believe that everyone would be better off if Jesus Christ were at the center of your lives. We're convinced that if you have a relationship with Jesus, you'll have peace and meaning and purpose and guidance. You'll have strength to face the challenges and you'll have hope for eternity that you do not currently have. So we want to encourage everyone, everyone who is here today, to receive the invitation that Jesus offers to each one of us. It is indeed the power of God to change our lives. And so saying yes to Jesus is the wisest decision that any of us can make. So let's make certain that we're not fools, whether it's in the daily affairs of our lives or spiritually, and that we respond to wisdom, not by deflecting it or denying it or ignoring it, by saying yes to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It's a sobering story. It reminds us of how quickly we can become fools, how it is so easy for us to dismiss, dismiss things that um, go contrary to what our emotions may be in the moment. Father, I pray that we would be wise in the affairs of our lives and listen to the Abigails, the wise people that, that bring us truth, that we might incorporate it into our lives. But most of all, Father, I pray that you would make us wise spiritually, to see that in Jesus Christ, we have the very wisdom of God and the power of God. May we respond and embrace a relationship with him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.